Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Selva. I'm a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist at Makota Medical Center, Malacca, Malaysia. Welcome to my podcast entitled Surviving Private Practice in Malaysia. Today we are fortunate to have uh, Mr. Alan Fernandez, who is an executive director at Asia Clinic Group, one of the largest private medical groups in Johor. Under his leadership since 1999, the company has set its sights on improving and expanding the services of primary and specialty care physicians to make a positive impact on the health of the community. Now, Alan brings to the table 22, 22 years of experience in various levels of healthcare industry, ranging from the public sector to secondary care hospitals, senior learning, medical tourism, primary care groups, and COVID response planning and procurement. Alan has consulted for top healthcare providers such as Parkway, Bumagrad, Kazana National, and Iskanda Investment Berhad, as well as the Ministry of Health in both Malaysia and Singapore. Now, with a keen focus on improving patient care and engagement, his role is to create unique strategies and solutions for various consumers of healthcare services. The ultimate goal is to reimagine the way healthcare is delivered, introducing an omnichannel healthcare team and establishing comprehensive treatment plans to address the biological, psychological, and social needs of each patient. He recently launched a home care concierge medical model for seniors and is currently developing transformative healthcare solutions in primary care and allied health services with Massa Universities. Alan holds a master's in public health with previous education in law and marketing. So welcome to the podcast, Alan. Uh, maybe uh, for the benefit of the audience, you could tell us something about the Asia Group. Now, I know about Asia Group because I'm from Johor. I did all my training in uh, Sultan Amina and I used to know your dad very well, uh, Dr. Trip Fernandez. I, I was uh, doing locum for him. I also know your mother, Maria Fernandez, who I did locum, many, many locums with her. So I know both of them very well. Now, so please tell us something about the Asia Groups uh, from the time I knew about 25, maybe 30 years ago up to, up to now. Sure. Uh, good evening, Dr. Selva, and uh, thank you for having me on. ACG Healthcare, which was formerly known as the Asia Medical Group, it owns and operates a medical group, medical practice in Johor Bahru. Our first Asia clinic was established in 1976 uh, by the late Dr. Tips Fernandez and Dr. Maria Fernandez. We've since expanded to 13 clinics in and around Johor Bahru, nine that we own and four that we manage. Most clinics are equipped with diagnostic facilities, uh, including X-ray, ultrasound, ECGs, where the panel doctors to over 600 companies in Johor and Singapore. While we are known for our experience in family medicine and community care, we also do much work in corporate and industrial health. So we are an old group practice, but we, you know, we can't stay the same. We're in the process of transitioning from a traditional primary care setup into a next generational uh, medical practice with a focus on preventive health. We're currently in the process of developing a patient care app, uh, looking into the digitalization of services and expanding our role in house calls and home nursing. Okay, sounds exciting. I mean, maybe is it the whole concept of this podcast is actually, we know that there are so many doctors who are coming out and they're all, many of them will be looking for jobs in uh, private practice because of all these contract problems and I'm probably many of them have already left and probably joined a kind of a primary health care facilities like your GP practice. Now the first question to ask as an administrator I'm sure you interview doctors to join your groups now what do you look for these young doctors when, when they you know apply to join your groups? 
Okay, that's a, that's a great question. I've often said that being a medical practitioner is not a profession. It's a vocation. It's like a calling to serve a higher purpose for society. It's not enough to be the smartest amongst your peers or the most ambitious. In fact, the most successful doctors I've known, I've hired and mentored are those who expressed a genuine love for their profession. There is a science an art and a business component to healthcare that young doctors need to understand. Uh, I call it the medical trinity. Medical school equips you with the science. Your clinical training teaches you the art. But for those who wish to venture into private practice, be it as part of a team of clinicians in a hospital or a group practice or as a solo practitioner, they must have an appreciation and a respect for the business component of healthcare. And that's where people like me come in, right, to assist young doctors in making that transition. But as far as, I mean, you say that you look for passion, but when you interview, what do you ask? What questions will you ask them? And how do you decide who will be the person right for you? Will you be able to elaborate on that? Sure, sure. I mean, look, firstly, firstly, I would look for competency, right? Not, not all doctors are created equal, but it doesn't matter where you got your degree from. It's what you do with it and what you do after that matters most to people like me, right? I've, I've come across many young doctors over the years. Some of them have a chip on their shoulder because they feel that, you know, maybe their medical degree was not from a prestigious university. To be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Patients don't care, Right. What, what I'm impressed by as an administrator, I'm impressed by young doctors who express a desire to continually improve their skills, their experience, and their knowledge, right? So if you ask me, what else do I look for? The second thing I look for is empathy, right? Doctors who demonstrate a genuine concern for their patients, irrespective of age, gender, race, and income. You know, I, I like the doctors that treat the CEO and the clerk with the same level of care and professionalism. Right. And I suppose thirdly, and I cannot stress this enough, the things that I look out for in a young doctor is patience and prudence. So unlike their classmates who went into banking, law or architecture, and, and I understand why sometimes this is an issue, because you've seen your classmates who maybe weren't as smart as you, who have gone on and they're making a lot of money before they're 30. Young doctors need to understand that the income generating years for a doctor are substantially longer than most professions. And the best doctors do not hit their peak earning potential until they're in their 40s. So one of the advice that I give to doctors when they come in for interview is, don't be in a rush to buy the big house, the BMW, or over-leverage your position. Just because the banks want to loan you money doesn't mean you take it, right? There's a delayed gratification element to healthcare. So you should know your strengths and plan accordingly. Okay, so you... You're looking for the soft skills more than actually the, the clinical skills. Am I right to say that? I, I would say both are equally important, but the soft skills is something that comes naturally, right? The clinical skills is something that you can improve on. So I think the mindset of, of doctors is key, right? I think another thing that I've noticed, I guess, again, 22 years, I've probably interviewed thousands of doctors in that time. I have noticed a shift in, in attitudes in the younger doctors today, which I admire. See, unlike some, of my, unlike some of my fellow administrators who are a bit critical of the millennial generation of doctors, I'm not. 
I think it's a great thing that they want work-life balance. I think it's a great thing that they, that they actually don't want to spend 60 hours a week you know, in the clinic because I, for me, that compromises the quality of care that you give to the patient. Right. See, we've been talking. I mean, I went to medical school what almost thirty years ago. Right. We were talking. We've been talking about patient-centric care for years, from the time I was in school. Right. We haven't really delivered it, and I'm starting to see that in the in the young doctors these days. Right. It's not about them. They really genuinely care for their patients, and they realize that for them to be good at what they do, as you said, the, the trade-off between your clinical skills and your soft skills. Right. For them to be good at both they need to have that work-life balance. So that's where, that's what we're trying to do even with our group, with our, with our the fresh batch of doctors that we've hired recently. Now that you brought that, that up, one question I'd like to ask is, what will be the advantage for a junior doctor to join a group like yours rather than them maybe starting their own practice? I mean, for the first, first things that we want to look at really is um, level of ambition, right? Because there are doctors who want to to want to set up want to set up their own practice. There are those who are happy working for a group practice, and I do encourage doctors to work with a group practice before they before they venture out to start their own. Right? I think it's good for them to understand how doctors' pays work. Right? Because especially those who make the transition immediately out of the public sector into the private sector. Right. So like, I think one of the things, one of the things that I, that I was thinking of discussing actually was pay, because that's usually what attracts doctors to leave the public sector into the private sector. Right. So I'll give you an example with, uh, with the ACG group, what we do. We have a flexi time duty roster at our practice, right? The doctor's pay typically commensurates with the number of hours worked per week. However, if the doctor is unable to fulfill those hours, or for that particular week, they have the option of doing additional hours during the following week or months to attain the requisite number of hours, right? We have a relatively generous starting pay and benefits package compared to most group practices. And that's something also that I encourage young doctors to shop around, right? It's good for you to know what the market is paying out there. Right. And for doctors who say work in clinics with a high volume of patients or who work nights or weekends, you can expect to get a higher compensation, which reflects your workload. Right. But it's also important that young doctors, when they enter the private sector, they understand the concept of benefits and paid leave as well, because their remuneration also includes contributions to EPF, SOXO, insurance. Some companies pay for medical courses. We do, right? And others, they are also paid full wages on the days that they're off for maternity, uh, medical, annual leave, which if you run your own practice, right? When you're off, there's no income, right? You're paying locums, you see? So that's another advantage if you were to work with, uh, with a group practice or a hospital, right? And that this constitutes part of what the, what the uh, practice will pays to employ them. And I think at this, mention, at this point, I'd like to mention that it's important to choose an honest medical practice to join. Uh, I have noticed a trend that some practices offer young doctors a low starting pay, but provide attractive annual bonuses. And some do this because they want to save on the employer's EPF contributions. I find this disingenuous as it forces doctors to accept lower wages on the promise of high bonuses. We don't do this. We believe in fair wages for fair work. We support our people in bad times because they are there for us in the good times. 
I said, since the pandemic, even during MCO, some days we didn't see a single patient. I'm proud to say that we paid all our doctors and nurses in full, right? Like no one, no one received a cent cut in pay, right? So, but there is, these are, again, these are things that doctors, I would, again, I come back to, I advise them to, I advise them to consider being employed before cutting out on their own. Okay, that, I think that is very good advice, I think, to, to, for young doctors to understand private practice, especially when they are living after two or three years in government service, they are, they are fresh, they got no idea of business, business sense and business sense is something that uh, comes with time. I think that is a good advice. Now, um, you mentioned about pay. How will, you see, if, if you are a general practitioner, uh, what can they do? I say they join a group like your group. What can they do to improve themselves so that they can increase their pay? I mean, look forward to an increment. You know, it's not only hours of work, it's a quality of work. Can you, can you give them some advice? Absolutely. Now, that, that is a brilliant question. Look, I have the same talk with all my doctors. I tell them that there's, there are only two ways to make money, earn more or spend less. It's not rocket science. Right. Gone are the days where doctors can sit in a consultation room and expect a steady stream of patients to walk in. You have to prove your worth by improving the, pac- the practice in which you work. Right. So these are questions doctors need to ask themselves. Are you making full use of the equipment and facilities available at your clinic or hospital? Right. You have to start, especially in primary care, you have to start by changing the narrative with your patient. Right? We have to, there's, a, there's a prevailing attitude amongst the public that, oh, I only see my doctor when I'm sick, right? but that's medical. We need to shift the narrative from illness to wellness, right? from curative to preventive. And that's where, that's where the typical primary care physician needs to sit in. Right? If your patient is not in a rush to leave the consultation room, then you shouldn't be in a rush either. Right? I, I don't respect doctors who specialize in the 60-second consultation or they tell me, oh, I saw 200 patients a day. That doesn't impress me. Right? If someone has come in to see you, they may have come in to see you today with a particular ailment, but there may be other areas that you would be able to assist them with. When was the last time they did a health screening? Uh, have you done an assessment of their medical history or their family medical history? Are there any chronic issues that they or someone in their family may be struggling with? You're the family physician. What can you do to help? Can you help them save money on treatments and medications? Make appointments for repeat consultations, right? Provide holistic periodic care rather than episodic symptomatic relief, right? The first one gives you money today, right? Sorry, the, the, sec- the, the letter gives you money today. They came in today, they got symptomatic relief. But if you're providing holistic periodic care, you've got, you get to see them regularly. You're engaged in your in your patients' lives, right? So that's one area in which you can, you know, increase at least the revenue for the practice. Also look how you can save the practice money. If there are staff or drugs or equipment that is unnecessary or improperly stored or maintained, you must advise your administrator accordingly, right? Most practices lose thousands of ringgit on expired inventory, faulty equipment, or lost revenue, right? Every dollar saved is a dollar earned. And now my next advice is key, track your performance and ask for a performance-related incentive. A principled employer will never deny you additional income if you have helped them earn more or spend less. 
And if that employer does not reward you, don't work for them, right? Like we have a, we have a two-tiered bonus program at ACG. One is based on patient numbers and the other is based on revenue. Why? Because if I only judge a doctor by how much money he or she makes, I would only have mercenary doctors working for me. I'm more impressed by doctors who bring more patients into the clinics, right? Bums on seats rather than revenue. And we pay generous bonuses for those who do the former. Okay, very interesting and good, uh, good concepts. Back to the way you are discussing, do, do your doctors work in just one practice so that they can uh, form relationship with their patients in that practice or do they move around? You know, you know what I'm trying to say? You've got a solo practitioner yeah. in Pase Gudang. You've got a clinic in Pase Gudang. One doctor is there most of the time so that he can kind of know the community or is it, you know, you move them around. How, how, how does it work? I think there's been a, okay, I can, I can speak maybe for our practice. I can't speak for others. But I think there's been a change in that philosophy over the last two decades. I think there was a point in time, uh, especially when I took over the practice in 99, where the doctors used to rotate between the clinics. And I understood the philosophy at that time, why it was done, right? Because A, you want to give doctors exposure, right? You don't want them to be stuck in the same clinic for too long. Uh, some doctors actually prefer that, right? Because they said, oh, it, it breaks the cycle of boredom. Mm -hmm. uh, from an administrator's point of view, it also means that you know, no one doctor gets too comfortable in one clinic. In case that doctor leaves, the clinic is going to suffer, right? So we're not, we're not dependent on any one doctor for that clinic's revenue. But I think times have changed. And I think it's important. I mean, I'm not just saying for the fact that you need to have a PIC in each clinic as per KKM. I think it's important that we have a back to the future kind of approach to healthcare, right? We want... I, I, would like, I would like doctors to be like the pillars in their local communities, right? I think it's important, it's important that we go back to a time when, you know, the doctors was known to and respected by the neighborhood. They treated you, your father, your mother, your family. They knew you by name. They knew your medical history by heart, right? You mentioned earlier at the, at the top of the program that, you know, you, you used to work with Dr. Tips and Dr. Maria, right? Dr. Maria is now 76 years old and she still remembers all her patients by name. She has their medical history in, their head, in her head. And that's, that's, I call that the Jurassic Park generation of doctors, right? I would like to see a return to that, right? I, it's the hard reset that primary care needs. And that one of the ways to do that is to have one doctor in one clinic where he sees he, he forms strong bonds with his patients and with the local community. So that, that is the principle that you're running with at, at the moment. No. The yes. yes, correct. That is excellent. So only when, when he's on leave or, so, or something like that, then somebody else will, will take over from the uh, take over the clinic. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, let's let's go in general. Now, what are the challenges in setting up a, 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 a single a solo clinic? What do you think? Could you could you give some advice? I'm sure you have set up new clinics uh, in, 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 in all these over right. the years. I'm sure there are many challenges. Um, I guess I'll address that in two parts. I think one, one I will speak about um, challenges for general practitioners in general. And uh, part two, I think I will address the issue of the solo practitioner. Right. So first, let me talk about just primary care in general. For years, people will tell me, oh, Alan, well done. You're in healthcare. You know, you are recession proof. 
right? That was what people used to believe, that all doctors are recession-proof, all hospitals and clinics are recession-proof. I guess there may have been some truth to that. We used to think that that was true, but it is recession-resistant, but it is not pandemic-proof. Many primary care doctors, pediatricians, you know, especially, and many, many hospital specialists as well, right, across the country have struggled during the past two years. Right, due to the pandemic, they've been seeing fewer in patients. I know many doctors who have either sold their practices or closed for good. Right? So the com complexities, challenges, and costs of running a clinic these days are significantly higher than it was, say, as recent as 10 years ago. Right? The need to ensure compliance with CCAPs, uh, requirements from KKM, FORMIMA, other agencies, is not only time-consuming, it's expensive. These are challenges. The cost of drugs, labor, equipment, rent, renovations, these are only going up year after year. How long can GPs sustain when they keep offering discounts, promotions, COVID testing? You know, yes, I know there are some doctors who are making money, but most of them aren't. When we look at how to, how to, how to address these challenges, we need to drive value into primary care instead of discounts, right? Price, gou price gouging is why the average bill to see a GP has remained relatively flat over the last 30 years. And I can say that for a fact because I have 45 years worth of records to go on, right? We are only charging 17% more in 2022 than we charged in 1992. That's insane, right? Nothing in 1992 costs only 17% more today, right? It's gone up double, triple, right? But the costs have skyrocketed. And this is why, you know, TPAs, panel companies, they get away with paying doctor's pittance. Again, challenges. This is why patients, they balk when they pay $100 to see their GP, but they don't think twice about paying $200 to do their hair or their nails. Challenges. And this is why I feel that the current fee-for-service model is flawed. right? So a day will come when the doctors will lose dispensing rights. Patients are so much better informed these days. Right between Doctor Google and online pharmacies, right the modern hypochondriac patient. I've and I've witnessed this with my own eyes. Will walk into the doctor's consultation room. Doctor, I have this, 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 this wrong with me, and I want this, 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 this medicines, right? And they will even do a price comparison check on how much you are charging for the medicines vis-a-vis -vis what they can buy it online. So there's a. I mean, I'm not saying that I have the answers to everything, but it's you know as both primary care physicians, healthcare administrators, we have to develop strategies to combat these challenges. So, which is why I advocate that GPs price their drugs to match pharmacies, right? So that there's a baseline comparison and charge an appropriate consultation fee instead of marking up on the medications. You must trust your patients, trust that they will pay for your services, right? Just practice medicine. Don't, don't just dispense it. Right, so that's like I said, my my the my general opinion on so on general challenges facing facing primary care. Now, for a solo practitioner, solo practitioners, I thought is a bit. In, I have an interesting take on this, right? So the same experts that are now predicting the death of the GP uh, were previously predicting the death of the solo practitioner about twenty years ago, right? They were wrong then, and they are wrong now. Right. 20 years ago, there was a big push, big push towards uh, physician practice management, uh, super group practices, right? Big group practices were all the rage. 
they were allegedly offering cost savings, generous payouts, right? And they would, they would dominate the market. But that hasn't really happened, right? It was really a financial play for a few to get rich on the hard work of the many. And it's still happening until today, right? Doctors thought that they were receiving equity that was going to make them millionaires, but it didn't happen. The quality of the software, the, the information systems have been poor and companies have not been delivering the value that they should have been. The fact remains that a standalone clinic often does better than a typical group practice. I believe, so this is where I'm, I'm experimenting with this model. I believe that it is possible to have a network of solo practitioners operating like a group practice. So let me, let me explain what I mean. I believe that the future GP should own equity in their own clinics. Either they own 20%, 50%, or they own the clinic outright, right? So they don't just work for a salary and a profit share, right? I believe that group, group practices like mine, we need to pivot away from clinic ownership and towards practice management, because that's our core strength, right? Is practice management. As I mentioned earlier, right? There's only two ways to, to make money, earn more and spend less, right? So the solo practitioner, he should focus on the clinical aspects of his practice and leave the non-clinical mundane administrative duties to a practice manager or a professional practice management company like ACG, right? And again, times have changed, right? 45 years ago, 46 years ago, when Dr. Tip started his practice, there were hardly any clinics, right? I think he was the first, first clinic in Taman Sritabrao, first 24-hour clinic, first for a lot of things, right? Today, you throw one stone, you'll hit two doctors. Right, that every neighborhood will have more, more clinics than the mama shops these days. Right? So we, we need to understand that because of, the, because of the fact that it's a very, very competitive market, the doctors need to focus on what they know best. Come to work, put on your coat and your stethoscope and be the best possible physician you can be to your patients and leave everything else that happens before the patient walks into your consultation room and everything that happens after the patient walks out of your consultation room to your practice manager, right? Your payroll, HR accounts, billing, inventory, legal, insurance, KKM, compliance matters, marketing, right? There's, there's a long list of things that go into the management of a of a typical GP practice. Uh, we're not talking about a hospital. Of a typical GP practice that quite frankly, doctors don't have to do. Let someone else do that, right? I mentioned earlier, work-life balance is key, right? As a physician, you can always make money. Let practice managers handle the stress. So if you have a network of solo GPs, so let's just assume now we have um, 10, GPs, so 10 solo GPs who are not affiliated to any, any group practice, where they're, they're doing their own thing, right? and they decide that they want to have the benefits of being in a group practice without having to relinquish their equity, their clinic branding, their identity, their patients, or their profits, right? These 10 doctors need to come together and decide that they would rather collaborate than compete, right? That they want to have shared services, shared resources, when they are uh, not shared buying, right? For, for drugs, inventory, disposables. Because when you do that, the cost of healthcare comes down and the outcomes improve, right? Both for the practitioner and for the patient. So this way, we don't have a McDonald's style group practice anymore. 
right? Each clinic is unique. Each doctor gets to practice a style of medicine that suits them best. So earlier I said the science, the business, and the art of medicine. This is the art of medicine that I was alluding to earlier. Your clinic is now a GP plus model, where for all intents and purposes, are you a standard GP clinic? Yes, but it's your clinic. So you get to practice the medicine that you like. It's your special interest, but be it dermatology, wound care, you know, if, uh, say infertility, if there's anything that that doctor likes to do, he gets to do that within his own practice. But still, because he's working with a group of doctors, right, who each of them has their own special interests, right, you can now refer patients within your own network without having to fear that, oh, if I refer to that GP, he's going to steal my patient. That's not going to happen. You're just referring him to, to a doctor friend that you have within your own network, within the local community, and still having that benefit of you know, the cost-saving benefit or the, of being within a group practice, the shared services, the shared management, right? So instead of paying one, each, each doctor having his own practice manager, everybody say puts in $1,000 into a pool per month and you have a team that manages all your work for you. So this is a win-win-win model. And this is the basis of all my future business decisions. Mm, sounds very interesting. Is it, is it pra being practiced in Malaysia yet? No, not that, I, not that I know of. And I think part, part of that is, as I said, one of the things that I'm hoping the next generation of doctors can overcome is you should, you should respect your peers and not fear them, not fear competition. I, I used the word earlier, collaborate, don't compete, right? The pie is big enough, right? If, every, if, you, if people want to get greedy, then we're going to have a problem, Right? Because as I said, when that happens, we, I come back to what I said earlier about price gouging, offering discounts, promotions. We're not, we're not raising the tide, which is what primary care needs to do, right? Hospitals have done that, right? You will rarely see a hospital, a secondary care hospital going out and engaging in price wars with others, right? Everybody more or less maintains the same. Primary care needs to do the same, in my opinion. Okay, so, sounds very interesting. But... Um, I mean, the next question actually I want to ask you is, you probably have answered this. What do you think is the future of general practice in Malaysia? This is a very sensitive topic. Uh, not being a doctor, I cannot speak for the profession. No doctors get very sensitive on this. However, as an administrator and someone who has spent his entire life in healthcare, I see this from an outside perspective, from the outside looking in, right? For me, primary care is in need of a hard reset. I mentioned earlier that, you know, I call it my back to the future approach, right? Where you're going back to the days of your neighborhood GP. So the role, the role that primary care doctors play as a care coordinators and gatekeepers, it's vital to a healthy healthcare system. And we have that. We have that in Malaysia. Right? Despite all the complaints people have, I've been around the world, I've studied all the healthcare systems. I would actually say we have one of the best, the best lowest healthcare delivery costs in the world. We, you know, we, are, we don't have any of the problems that the US or the NHS have. Right? And what we, where we need to improve on is a focus on preventive health, nutrition, wellness, the social determinants of health. Right? That GPs should now understand that their role is not pill pushers, you should focus on health and care and let the hospitals focus on medicine, 
right? You, there's the, given the rise of, you know, telemedicine operators, and there's been a massive investment into digital health. You know, and many of these, as I said earlier, many of these experts are predicting the death of the GP with the rise of telemedicine. I disagree. Healthcare is not food. The doctor-patient relationship is sacred. And you cannot reduce that relationship to a mere financial or convenient transaction, right? You should not order your doctor online as you would a car or a meal, right? You cannot replace the in-clinic in-person provision of care purely with a text or a video chat. You can complement that experience with, say, online follow-up. You know, like our, our, some of our doctors, actually, they, they give out their private phone numbers to patients for patients to actually send them texts or videos to follow up, right? That's great. You can complement the in-person experience with online follow-up care but you cannot replace it, right? There's a, and this is where I want, to give, I want to give some hope to the young doctors who think that, oh dear, we're going to be replaced by AI and telemedicine. Don't worry, okay? There's a reason why Malaysians still prefer to eat in restaurants, why the grocery stores are still full, right? Even though you're able to do both of these things online. We are a very high-tech society, that's true, but we are also a high-touch society. We value human interaction, right? So the successful GP of the future will know how to take the best of what traditionally defined family medicine, what traditionally defined primary care, and you combine that with innovative digital health solutions, which you can do on a microscopic level within your own practice, or you can do it on a macroscopic level where you join other online health platforms. Because this is both for your patient and for the local community in which you serve. For young doctors, do you think these young doctors are coming up early uh, from, uh, from the public hospitals to private practice? Initially, no. Recently, yes. Right. So I think, again, this is, a, this is probably going to be a, a two-part answer. Right. So first, why I encourage uh, young doctors to A... If, if, you are, if you are stagnating in a public service, if you've hit a bit of a ceiling, get out, right? Like, because the nature of your profession requires you to learn, right? It requires you to continually learn. I'll, I'll come back to the learning point. Attracting doctors to primary care has always been difficult because specialists are paid significantly more than GPs. And there's a... There's a perception, fairly or unfairly, amongst uh, young doctors. Maybe it's been groomed by decades of uh, medical TV shows or peer pressure or family pressure that they must, must become specialists at all costs. But if everyone is becoming a specialist, then who's going to become a GP? There's billions. I can show you the data. There are billions of ringgit spent by millions of Malaysians every year in primary care. It can't all be going to a small handful of people and a small handful of group practices, right? There's so much that can be done in primary care, so much more that can be done besides being a cough and cold or a COVID testing clinic, right? There's integrated care, sports medicine, senior care, right? The demand for healthcare is rising exponentially, right? Malaysia, Malaysia we all know this, Malaysia is facing a demographic transition, right? With the aging segment, it's widening. 
you've got diabetes, hypertension, uh, obesity, NCDs, right? They're all on the rise. And 30% of our population over 50 already has more than one chronic medical condition. But on the, uh, it is perhaps then no surprising that on the flip side, our research indicates that consumers are placing greater emphasis on actively improving their health. They're eating better, getting more exercise, right? Among even my own peers, right? Uh, fitness is now the new midlife crisis, right? They're all running marathons and cycling, right? And the younger demographics, they have demonstrated a higher affinity for healthy lifestyles, uh, conscious consumerism, right? And they, there's less smoking, less drinking, which is great. So, and a lot of parents, young parents these days, you know, they consume organic food, they're millennials, and this, this number is, you know, expected to surge over the years. Dr. Google can only do so much. The younger generation that has all grown up with a smartphone, grown up with the internet, you can, you can connect to your patients better. They're, you know, the neighborhood family GP of, from 2020 and above, right? You can do so much more than your predecessors. There's a reason why it's called primary care. It's our first entry point to health. We need to improve access to and the number of primary care physicians, not diminish them, right? Healthcare is hard, I admit. It's, a, it's rarely a fast way to riches, uh, but we need a new generation of GPs, right? Young, not so young, right? Who are ready to build for the long term. Right? We want to improve the system, right? support innovation for good, transformation for good. So that's my true north as a, as a healthcare administrator. But again, it comes with a caveat, an important caveat. MBBS does not equal MBA. For every one doctor that has run a wildly successful practice or business, dozens, maybe hundreds have not. So that last component of the medical trinity that I spoke of in the beginning, right? I said the art, the science, and the business of, of medicine. So now I can share with you a true story. Uh, my father, even though he was the president of MMA, wanted me, wanted me to not go into medicine, right? He wanted me to go into business. And I told him, uh, Papa, I don't want to. I, I want to be a doctor, right? I got the grades. I got into medical school, but I was also a very uh, ambitious and precocious, uh, precocious young man. I told I wanted to run hospitals, and my dean put his arm around me, and I'm one of his best students. He put his arm around me and walked me over to the law faculty, and he said, "You don't need a medical degree to run a medical facility." That was his. That was his words to me. You don't need a medical degree to run a medical facility, and he was right. Right, So I encourage all young doctors to take basic courses in business or finance. Right, You need to have a basic appreciation of healthcare management and market trends to properly run your practice. Right, Nothing in medical school, nothing in your housemanship prepares you for this. Any, but if you're not keen, if they're not keen on going into business, right, this is, it's not for them, that's okay too. Right? They shouldn't, young doctors shouldn't feel pressured that they need to live up to some societal or familial uh, standard because they are doctors. There's plenty, plenty of alternative careers that doctors can get involved in if medicine is not for them. Right? Um, I guess at this point, I would like to give a shout out to Dr. Selina Chu and Dr. Vivek of Medic Footprints Malaysia. 
because I know they are providing a platform for young doctors to explore opportunities outside of medicine. Uh, I'm very proud to say that I'm working with them now. And I hope that over the next few years, uh, we can provide a lot of young doctors who are maybe a bit disillusioned with healthcare, uh, new opportunities. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I've interviewed Selena Chu and I think she's doing a fantastic job with uh, Medic Footprints. You mentioned about all these new things that you have, uh, that you think GPs could do. Are you implementing those things in your group practice? Things like, what, what do you say? Uh, uh, okay. Wellness, so, wellness and things like that? So I can, I can share with you a story of what happened last year, uh, which led to uh, one, of the, one of the things that we, we introduced recently. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the program that I'm doing a concert-style uh, plan, health plan for seniors. So the genesis of this story was I was at our clinic. Uh, there was an elderly gentleman that uh, was outside the clinic, saw me. He says, is this your clinic? I said, yes. He says, I would like to sell you my medicines. And it was medicines that he got from the hospital. So there was, uh, I think, some hypertension, uh, hypertensive medicine and I think it's uh, I think Lipitor. So there was one of the statins, I think. And it was maybe about $200 worth of medication. And so I asked him, I said, um, Uncle, you know, why are you selling your medicines? He says, oh, I have no money. I have no money. I need to eat. Uh, and I said, if you don't take these medicines, you will die. Right? He says, you know, I'd rather, I rather give up my medicines, you know, because, you know, what I mean. and I, I, I was just crying. I, I gave him money, you know, I said, I work for a food bank, please, please, uh, you know, contact me anytime, right? You know, you, but don't, don't do this, right? And I walked into the clinic and there were seniors uh, uh, in queue to take the vaccine. So I was sufficiently moved by what had just happened. And... I went to talk to the seniors who were sitting there and I just asked them, you know, simple questions, right? When's the last time, when's the last time you saw a GP? When's the last time you've been to a clinic? When's the last time you've done a health screening? And these are senior citizens. Huh? These are not young people. These are the most at-risk, un uninsured segment of the population, right? And they, the almost standard answer was, no, I haven't seen a doctor in years, or I'm afraid, I don't want to find out. Uh, one of the most common answers was I can't afford it because to be fair, they're, re they're retirees, senior citizens, they don't have a source of income. Uh, a lot of them said they don't want their children to worry. And, you know, I left, I left the clinic that day and I, was, I felt that, okay, I need to do something about this, right? And many years ago, I met the CEO of Kaiser Permanente in, in US, uh, the late Bernard Tyson. And he said something that changed my life. He said that your role as a healthcare administrator is to address and solve inequities in healthcare. That's your job. You're not a doctor because he's not a doctor either, right? He says, we can't see patients. We can't treat them. So all we can do is solve inequities in healthcare. And that, that, like I said, that has really inspired a lot of what the change in which I'm trying to accomplish. So about two weeks later, when the, when the seniors came in for their, for their booster, um, we offered them a plan. We said for you know, a fixed fee, we will do an annual screening for you. We will give you a house call 
and we'll give you uh, visits to the doctor, bundled visits to the doctor with medication for common ailments. And if they are on any uh, NCD medication, you know, we will help if they are not getting it from the government, if they're buying it out of pocket, right? We will subsidize the cost of that, right? Give them a small discount. What does it cost me? Nothing, right? I pay my doctors the same rate, whether they see two patients an hour or six patients an hour or 10 patients an hour. Right? To be able to provide, and this was about maybe 800 of these seniors right, who went on this plan, to be able to provide peace of mind, comfort, security to those 800 seniors, right? that meant more to me than anything else that I have done right? in, in recent years. Right? Because that's what we need to do moving forward, is to look at how we are delivering healthcare. Look at inequities in the system. What can we do to address those inequities without necessarily having to make radical, expensive, earth-shattering, disruptive changes to the system? We don't, right? Everybody says, I'm here to disrupt healthcare. I want to disrupt healthcare. You don't need to disrupt healthcare. Healthcare is fine, right? You need to improve it. That's true. Right? But there's no need to radically change anything. Right? Let's look at where there are problem areas, that look at where things are already can be done better. Let's improve that, right? rather than saying, oh, everything is rubbish and let's replace it. You see, so here's so a system where with, with no additional cost to us, we helped 800 seniors get peace of mind with their healthcare. Right? And I plan to roll out similar plans uh, for this for other at-risk segments of society. Now, doctors are correct to say that, oh dear, you know, if we did that for everyone, we will end up losing money, perhaps. But I'm not asking you to do it for everyone. I'm asking you to do it for the people that need it, because that is the balance that we must achieve in healthcare. Okay, that sounds very interesting. Sounds really very interesting. Um, I think this, these are very good thoughts, and uh, I am sure uh, our young doctors will who were coming out to become GPs will think of uh, advice like this for the for their future, how they look look at medicine uh, in the future. So if you, you are coming out as a primary care physician, you're most probably going to be there for the rest of your life. And so they can plan their future to look at things probably. I, I like I like the way you say it. You must think you must think out of the box, think differently and, and, and not disrupt but improve what we are what, what we are practicing. Okay, maybe um, I think we have been speaking for nearly 50 minutes. Anything, anything, any last uh, advice to young doctors before we conclude? I understand a lot of young doctors face frustrations and um, it's, it's the nature of a profession where you are an apprentice. When you have an apprentice to a senior doctor, it's hard sometimes to get your, your thoughts and opinions across. I should know, I, I live in a family full of doctors. Right, and, uh, but you must persevere. If if there is something that you believe in, if there is change that you want to see, and if you may not be getting the necessary uh, advice or support, uh, encouragement, or even opportunities in the area that you're in, don't give up. That's what I'm trying to say. You I mean you went to medical school? You were the smartest in your class for a reason. You went through six years of that for a reason, right? You're doing your hospice. You went through. You've gone through all of this. If 
if there's some if there's something in there that make that has made you choose medicine as a vocation as your calling right explore every opportunity to succeed even if it means having to relocate even if it means having to change your job explore every opportunity to succeed and rest assured there are plenty of people like me who will give you that opportunity thank you very much it was a very inspiring uh, interview thanks doc